Welcome to the Good Life Central Oregon podcast, where we pursue the good life by helping you pursue yours. The good life begins with a roof over your head, so please contact our sponsors for this podcast, Remax Revolution and Sisters. Remax is the number one real estate company in the world, and Remax Revolution offers new solutions for better results. Go to ilovecentraloregon.com to find out more. All right, here we are with another installment of the Good Life Central Oregon podcast. Today we have Jay Mather. Uh, many of you, uh, if you don't know who he is, uh, I've, I wrote down some little notes here, Jay. So please pipe in. Well, you'll have your chance to pipe in. Let me. I, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna good s- at piping. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna. I'll, I'll give a little introduction, and you can clarify. Um, but uh, I stole this from your website, so I trust the source is accurate. Uh, Jay is a uh, Pulitzer Prize winning photographer. Uh, and we're going to dive into that story, so I'm not going to reveal it now. Uh, but you've also spent some time with some very, very interesting people, including uh, Mother Teresa, Pope John Paul II, uh, President Clinton. Um, but uh, you're also quite a bit of an outdoorsman. And, uh, and according to your website, you have a thing for ballet and folk music that I want to find out about. Um, and by the way, the website uh, for Jay is jmather.com. Is that correct? Yep. Simple. Uh, yep. Uh, Simple. If, if you, uh, it's not very hard to find. So, I uh, want to dive into some more of these stories. Uh, Jay, say hi to everyone. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you very much for coming down here and uh, and doing this podcast with me. Today's kind of a uh, somewhat of a snowy day in Central Oregon, which is, I, I should say, refreshing change. But you know, I like it warm. It's it's been uh, warm and sunny and beautiful for all January long. So well, it can be, it could be nastier now, and then we might actually. Uh, feel a bit of relief come yeah. August and September when in Central Oregon isn't burning down. Uh, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll see how this year plays out. But, <laughs> but you know, the old saying, if it's sunny and warm, just wait five minutes, and then we'll, we'll see. I've been it's waiting been... for a couple of days. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, I want to find out. Um, so <clears throat> you are a photographer. Yes. A professional. Well, yes, I was. I guess I can still say that. I make a few bucks here and there. Well, and... and but a photographer as a uh i'm not even sure how to differentiate uh, uh the two if if there if there is a con- considerable difference but as far as being a uh photojournalist as opposed to a photographer artist is there a difference yeah um in in journalism photojournalism you're prim- primarily interested in the reality of the moment um what happens in front of your lens is 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 the reality, and um, generally you're not supposed to alter that reality. I think in the artistic sense of the word uh, photographer, there's a little bit more freedom to uh, instill your personal uh, artistic preferences. Would there be artistic parallels between playing music and acoustic guitar as opposed to playing an electric with all kinds of crazy effects? Mm, Yeah, it's a that's 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 sort of where I'm going. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, um, how did you get started in photography? Well, you know, uh, it's. I didn't uh, set out to be a photographer um, when I was in school. I really didn't know much about it, even in high school. Although I had, I had somewhat of an interest in it, and 
can remember several times in my early life when photography kind of was peeking its head around the corner and I was peeking back and saying, well, hmm, that, that might be interesting. But it wasn't really until um, I got into my last couple of years of college that um, I started taking some journalism courses and took the... Uh, I took the full range of courses that the University of Colorado offered at that time, which was beginning and advanced photography. The two courses. <laughs> that was it. That was it. Man, <laughs> on my, I was on my way. But, you know, that was all I needed. That was the inspiration I needed. And, um, frankly, I failed one of my courses in, uh, in my major course of study, which was geography. And I actually failed a, uh, a biology class because I had spent too much time in the photo lab that semester. And so I had to go back that summer and f repeat the biology course so I could graduate. So that was just kind of foreshadowing of things to <clears throat> come. Yes, it, 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 it uh, established my uh, uh, interest in photography and also my uh, passion for it and uh, my dysfunction with it as well. <laughs> so, but what was it that drew you to the visual image? Well, at first it was just the, it was the sheer mechanical beauty of it and the and being uh, at that time, of course, shooting film and and working in the dark room and all the the magic that happened in the dark room with uh, making uh, negatives and then printing the negatives and you know seeing the final print, it was just a it was it was, it, it transports you if you've never uh, done that before. It became very um, it was it was enticing to say the least. I, I remember taking a photography class in college, and this was still in the darkroom days, but um, but we got to learn how to develop the film the, the proper way the, and uh, and go through the, the image creation. And, mm -hmm. and, um, and to me, not being a photographer, it, that was kind of an experience. That was part of the package that made someone a photographer. Is, um, just, just from that little, tiny experience I had it was kind of I think you called it a magic but that was kind of a neat thing that just not really there that much anymore it seems well very few people are shooting film now although a few still do and still uh, enjoy the the uh, process of creating a an image um, on film and then making that print but uh, uh, digital photography has changed the landscape of course and it has altered the way that people make photographs and uh, treat them afterwards. So I, I know you do um, shoot on digital, but do you have a preference between film and digital? Well, no, I don't, because film is, uh, while it's, you know, it, it evokes fine memories of the past, it... Uh, it's a tedious process, and digital offers you so much more um, creative opportunities, uh, and and almost in a, on an instantaneous level. So the <clears throat> excuse me, so that you uh, see the results of what you are thinking you're getting um, very quickly, rather than having to wait for the. Send the film off and get the film and, back. And not having to use a Polaroid. Well, yeah. 
I still have boxes of Polaroids. <laughs> Wait, which, at, yeah, that, yeah, they, they served yeah. a definite purpose. Well, but they did, you know. The Polaroid, uh, the equivalent of the Polaroid now is the back of your camera when you see the, yeah. when you see the image. Exactly. Um, so where did you go after college and studying photography? I didn't. Um, studied it by doing it. Uh, I joined the Peace Corps after college and was um, assigned to Malaysia, and I was living about 100 miles north of Singapore at the time and would uh, go down to Singapore uh, once in a while and um, decided I would go down there and buy my first set of 35-millimeter cameras. So, uh, with, you know, at the time when you when you could buy things overseas, uh, either in Hong Kong or Singapore, um, you got incredibly good prices. I don't suppose that's necessarily the case anymore. I think prices have pretty much evened out due to the global internet uh, prices or prices. Mm -hmm. But at that time, you could go save a huge amount of money by buying them from a uh, camera dealer in uh, in Singapore. So I uh, went there and bought uh, two bodies and I think three lenses and uh, was on my way. And what I enjoyed most of then was being able to just experience a new culture, a new uh, place on the world uh, through my through 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 the my through the cameras. And how long were you in Malaysia? Two years. And uh, did you just did you uh, take a lot of shots while you were there, or was that just kind of a side I, hobby? Oh uh, well, at that point, <clears throat> it probably was a it was a fledgling vocation. I knew that that was something was really that I really enjoyed it enough that I would I was began to really see that's what I wanted to do when I came back to the states. Although I did, had no no clue of how I was going to do that. So, so ha what happened after your? Uh, I, f I feel like we should dive into that uh, uh, Peace Corps uh, experience a little bit more with with photography. What, uh, what what did you do while you were down there? What was your well, mission? Well, I was so primarily to assigned to, to work in health education. Um, there was a, a part of the part of the uh, whole experience was that I was sent there. Well, I was married at the time and um, had gotten married while I was in college. And um, my wife and I at the time um, went as a couple. She was assigned to work in one of the rural health clinics. Um, offering uh, family planning uh, help to the local medical staff. And we would go out into the rural uh, areas and um, help the local nurses and people that were going out um, just provide information to the women in the villages that uh, what kind of Opportunities, what 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 uh, pro what they might be able to do in terms of family planning. That we weren't trying to force family planning on the on the people in the in the areas. Uh, shortly after we were there, well, within a year after we were there, the the Malaysian government had a did a population census and realized that the Malay population was becoming the minority population in the country. And of course, the leaders in the country didn't think that was such a good idea. So they kind of came down on the Peace Corps and said, well, you couldn't do counseling out in the villages. 
And then they came back with another thing. Said, "Well, you can't do counseling in the uh, in the clinics," and because they, of course they didn't want the population to decrease by. So they didn't want family planning. So they, they wanted family pretty, explosion. Pretty much they didn't. They didn't want family planning at all. So that kind of eliminated our jobs. Mm. <laughs> so what we were left with is just to do the best we could with the people that were around us, and you know, uh, you know, and work with them. They were they were doing a fine job. Uh, as it as it was in terms of public health and all, they had a pretty good program going, um, but it just gave me an open door to to uh, take my cameras and go wherever within the confines of where I could go at the time to photograph the people in in the area. Did you have a purpose or a goal for taking pictures around there? No, just opening my eyes to another culture. Of course, then after we left the Peace Corps, we went. We traveled extensively through Indonesia and Thailand, and then did a major uh, month-long trek in Nepal uh, before we came home. And after we got home, um, I decided I'd put some of this work together and just see if I could find work as a photographer. So I went around to a number of newspapers in the Denver area uh, where I was living, and. Um, Got some good advice. They said, you know, you're, you've got some talent. You're really not ready for, I don't think you're ready for the daily work because you haven't had any experience, but you'd try to find yourself um, a, like a small paper to work at first. So there, there was a, a lag in that process um, and before I actually found work. Um, I uh, spent a couple of summers uh, guiding and teaching uh, outdoor wilderness uh, experiential education um, programs with the Hour Bound School in Colorado. And, and that, when was this? Mm, that would have been the 71, 72, something like that. 1971. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Way back then. You know, pre, prehistory. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that was fun. I enjoyed it, you know, and... and um, to answer one of your questions, I thought you were, might ask is, uh, what else would I have done had I not been a photographer? And I think, I think I might have enjoyed a career in um, uh, outdoor wilderness education, you know, that kind of thing. But um, in retrospect, I'm glad I didn't do that because I don't think my body would have held up as long. Because <laughs> that's pretty rigorous, rigorous stuff, you know. Yeah. Um, I I maintain my love of the outdoors and wilderness and. Uh, climbing and hiking and skiing and you know as long as my body would permit me to um, but uh, I was actually uh, working with uh, a group of uh, people that uh, out of a uh, it was the Christian brothers in 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 uh, in St. Louis um, doing a, a court-ordered program for juvenile delinquents uh, from the court system there. And the reason I got involved in that was uh, Willie Unsold, who was the one of the first Americans to summit Everest in 63, uh, knew throughout were bound of me, and he called me one day and said, would I be interested in this program? And he and his son and another fellow were going to be heading up this program, and in the Ozarks, and would I be interested in joining them and helping out? So I went out there for a summer, 
and it was absolutely the worst experience I think I've ever had in the wilderness. I mean, I just uh, working being in the wilderness is one thing. Being in the Ozarks in the summer is another thing because it's hot and humid and mm. you know rampant with big fat snakes and stuff like that. So I just and, uh, and big plus fat that, bugs I would imagine yeah and bugs and 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 then uh, uh, sort of out of control kids that didn't want to be in this program in the first place, but they thought it was better than going to juvenile hall. So uh, put those two factors together of of uh, environment plus uh, recalcitrant students uh, left me with a bad taste in my mouth. <laughs> At the end of the summer, I said, well, okay, I'm going to go back to Colorado and I'll get my stuff and come back out and we'll, and we'll see how it goes for another couple of months. By the time I got back to Colorado and I got back to where I was living outside of Denver, there was a note on the by the phone from a photo editor in Denver saying, um, if I was inter- still interested in a full-time job in photography, I should call him by about 5 o'clock. And I had just gotten home, that, and it was 4.30. <laughs> so I had a half an hour to, say, go, to calm myself down <laughs> and say, yeah, I'll come in for the interview. Yeah. And that Monday morning I went in, took the job for all of, I think, $105 a week. Um, to work on a chain, for a chain of suburban weekly papers in the Denver area. So freelance? Pre, huh? So freelance? No, no, I was one of two staff photographers. Okay. And we covered 14 daily, 14 metro, uh, uh, suburban metro Denver weekly papers. And it was, a, it was a great job because I got to go meet people and do anything and... and uh, it was just it was it was the it was a fantastic on the job experience, and um, and I, what was this paper? It was the Sentinel newspapers. Sentinel, okay. Yeah, no longer in existence. They since long folded their tent and went home. That seems to be the way. Yeah, well, papers this was a long time ago. The paper, the little chain of suburban papers, was owned by the Minneapolis Star and Tribune, and I thought maybe that'd be a gateway I could get a job in Minneapolis, and. Uh, Actually went there for an interview, but didn't get a job. Um, wound up uh, going to the Louisville Career Journal um, in 1977, where I uh, spent the next 10 years, and eventually wound up in in Sacramento and the uh, owned by the McClatchy Corporation, which in turn then, in the subsequent years, bought the Minneapolis Star and Tribune. So, <laughs> so actually, I wound up. In the same place I went. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yeah. it's, a, how, funny. it's a, how how things turn. Yeah, yeah. So that's a that's an abbreviated uh, uh, job description of where I've been, and you know. And so that was the story of of your picking up a camera and become yeah, going pro. And then, yeah, just you know, and it really was. It once I never took another photography course um, because you were around people that you could bounce ideas and talent and techniques off of. And so did you have mentors or peers or peers. people that shared yeah, knowledge? Peers, peers mostly, you know. Um, I, I don't know that I would ever, I can't recall that I actually had what I would call a mentor. It's always just been me and the camera and uh, people who see my work. And they're, they're, you know, if anything, the people who, see my work and comment about it or the mentors. So just going out, doing it, experiencing doing it, it was your finishing school? Yeah. 
just you know there's nothing can't beat for that for that time in my life nothing could beat just being out on the street doing it yeah yeah try something if that didn't work try something different well yeah experiment yeah so how did you end up in cambodia because that's a story that we we ought to uh, well we'll talk about um Basically, it was a uh, um, again a, a set of uh, unpredictable circumstances that kind of put it all together. Um, I was working in Louisville at the time and got an assignment one day uh, to go to Louisville General Hospital to photograph an emergency room doctor who was leaving Louisville to join the uh, United Nations. Uh, High Commission for the Red Cross, or you know, the United, that whatever that umbrella organization, the International Red Cross, or whatever it is, I don't. And he was uh, sent, uh, at the time he was going to be sent to Somalia, and so we photographed him for uh, for part of a day, you know. And he, it's just one of those daily, just general daily assignments, you know. You, you go out and you spend some time with a guy, and you get to know him a little bit, and make a few pictures, and come back and. You know, do your work in the lab and send the prints out and go home. You know, yeah. the end of it, you know. Um, and then um, it was the following, I, I remember this is probably like sp- spring of 1979. And then that fall, right around Halloween, um, is when the next uh, step in the in the process happened. And one of my favorite things to do on a Sunday morning was always to watch the Charles Corralt Sunday morning show. You know, if you people people would remember who Charles Corralt was. Uh, he was the... I, I think he I was, was watching the, he was the, at that time. Yeah, <laughs> he was the, uh, uh, the... Sunday morning is still on the air, and it was... Uh, but he was this global uh, reporter, just traveled around in his bus and did stories about great things going on in in the United States. It was, you know, he was a documentary journalist as well, but he was using TV as his medium. Hmm. And and then would use, do this uh, Sunday morning program. It was a 90-minute program every Sunday morning put on by CBS, CBS News. Um, and I was watching it one morning, right around Halloween of 79, and they came on with a, a, a segment um, of, uh, at the time when the, uh, Khmer Rouge were being um, dismantled and threatened and being chased out, of, chased down and hunted down by the North Vietnamese who were invading, coming back into Cambodia to uh, try to, re, to re, you know, to overthrow the, the Khmer Rouge regime. And at that time, the, the is when all the refugees from uh, inside Cambodia who had been under the thumb of the Khmer Rouge for five years. Since uh, well, yeah, since '75, um, we're streaming across the the border into Thailand, into the massive uh, refugee camps that were being set up then. And a, another reporter, his name is Ed Bradley, and if people remember who Ed Bradley was, he was this uh, wonderful, um, articulate rep- uh, journalist. Uh, who was, he was standing there on this, and he was interviewing a doctor who was treating these uh, refugees who had come across the come across the border, and 
it just caught me by surprise because I thought it was the same physician that I had photographed in Louisville, but was, I wait a minute, he's supposed to be in Somalia. And it, I was sure it was him. And I thought, oh, my God, we can, you know, this was at a time when, when um, the newspapers were willing to uh, send their reporters and photographers to far-flung places in the world for stories, especially stories that involved local people. That was always your hook. Mm-hmm. If you could find a great story, but it had, if it had a local hook, somebody who was, who people remembered from the community, and um, and and just that week, that prior week, I remember we had been seeing the the some of the AP photos that were coming across, and we just didn't think that the story was story was being fully told. So I called up the picture editor. Um, at home, and I said, "This is amazing." I said, "But we've got to, we've got to investigate this." And she said, "Go ahead, just just find out what you can find out." So I spent a couple of days trying to track down um, this guy and see if I could figure out if it was really him, and if I could actually, if we could come and do a story about him and what was going on uh, with the Cambodian refugees at the time. And after a couple of days, I finally figured out it was him, but uh, couldn't get a phone number for him and couldn't figure out till I got a hold of um, the church that he attended in Lexington. And I don't know how it came to be that he and That was, was your connection to him? Well, I, I, and I, so I called up the church, and, I, and, I, and the church secretary answers the phone, and I introduced myself, who I was, and what I was, and what I was trying to do is to find this guy. His name is Ken Rasmussen. And I said, do you happen to know where Dr. Rasmussen and how I can get a hold of him? And she says, well, actually, I do. I just got a letter from him and it's sitting right here on my desk. <laughs> wow. So we had an address for him. So we, we and she, and, uh, and got a phone number or whatever, and, but we didn't, we, we, at that time, you didn't call long distance because, well, because who knows if, if, if. You could call Thailand long distance in ninety. Oh yeah, you know. So we sent a cable. The, the, yeah, this was before uh, uh, answering machines. This before, was, Skype. <laughs> was, the, before Skype. Before Skype was before so, long before internet. Yeah, yeah, right. So we sent him a cable, and we he said, you know, we saw you on. T- and he said, we want it. This is the Courier Journal in Louisville. Can we come? Is can we come uh, do this story? And uh, the the response, he cabled back and he says, the story is here. Come on, come ahead. That's his. That was it. The story is here. Come ahead. Hmm. So, a writer and I, Joel Brinkley. Uh, Sounds like he was getting wrapped up in well, they, what you was know, happening there. Well, Joel was. Yeah, yeah. Joel was um, hand picked out of the newsroom because uh, he was one of the better writers of the paper. So the you know the city editor goes up and hey you got something going on we want to send you to Cambodia and Joel goes I don't know what you're talking about you know but it. Took him no time to get up to speed on what was going on. Um, we had only four or five days to get ready to go, um, so that meant a quick trip down to the health department to get the uh, some some inoculations. And uh, remember the the uh, the nurse there saying, "Where are you going?" She said, "We said Thailand, Cambodia." She says, "Well, here's the list of diseases you might get." But I don't have you, you. I can't give you all the shots right now. So pick the ones you think you're most likely to get. <laughs> well, uh, 
Somehow or other, Joel <laughs> didn't pick uh, typhoid because he contracted typhoid just before we left and was sicker than a dog for almost uh, two or three weeks after we got back and could barely even write a word. Oh, no. Yeah, and I, I uh, got back unscathed um, phys- men- or, uh, medically, you know, the... The uh, the memories of the trip were 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 indelible, but uh, I came back fine. Um, so we we left on November fourth, nineteen seventy nine, which I think was the same day that the U.S. Embassy in Tehran was overtaken and the hostages were held yeah. for four hundred and forty four days. And so but, it was with some trepidation, you know, that we were heading off into this unknown, you know, and. Um, we got to we flew unstable to ba- would be a mild word. Yeah, for we went what to we, we got to Bangkok and we got a we rented a car. We didn't we didn't have a driver. We didn't have an interpreter. We just we were just winging it, two guys winging it. And so we we got in a car. We went out there and uh, found the found uh, met Doctor Rasmussen and his wife, and she too was just recovering from about with typhoid and was still rather sick. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was he was fine. He had. He was running a small clinic there that um, was treating some of the refugees who had had been in Thailand for a, a period of time. It wasn't like this million and a half refugees had had just flown over the crossed over the border in the last two weeks. Some had been there uh, a couple of months or more. Uh, but we got directions to all the the major camps we wanted to go to, and um, at one point we were in one camp in the. The, the U.S. ambassador to Thailand and some in his entourage and some Thai people were were walking through the camps and we saw them and they were th- this ambassador was just shocked. He said, "What the hell are you doing here?" <laughs> you know. And I think I think a lot of people, um, especially our readers in the career, wonder, "What the hell are you guys doing there?" You know. Well, let me ask you yeah, this: What what uh, besides diseases? What other dangers did you face while you were there? Um, I mean, with an unstable government, I assume uh, there's indiscriminate rocket attacks. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we were staying in a in a hotel called the uh, oh, I forget what the name of the they had a moniker for it. It was like the um, a little town called Aranya Pratet. And this hotel was the walls had where you can see were pockmarked with shells and so i mean no really the only i you know we we were naive enough i think to not be afraid of anything so i mean we were we didn't traverse down far into cambodia itself because we didn't have any any cover you know nobody was going with us to say you know this is probably not a good place to go or maybe you can go there whatever We, we concentrated our efforts on um what was going on in the camps and talking to the people and hearing their stories of what life under the Khmer Rouge had been like. And it was the beginning of what the world came to know as the killing fields. It wasn't until reporters like us and others, uh, I won't say it was just us, but we began to tell the world what the killing fields was about and that um, nearly three million had been uh, systematically executed and killed for various uh, under various circumstances over the over the five years that the Khmer Rouge had been in. in now, power. did the world did the world news rep- 
was it, did the, I'm sorry, did it already, uh, did the world already know about what was going on there? Um, I'm sure that the world did uh, in, a, in some way. It wasn't like major um, concern. Uh, I suppose in a small way it was, yeah, the world had its head in the sand, much like it mm -hmm. did in World War II with the uh, Nazi concentration camps. Yeah. Um, but uh, once the story got out, it was it was horrific, and the stories were um, unimaginably sad. Um, I'm not sure if I should ask you to go in deeper on what stories you told. I'm, I'm sure some probably shouldn't be shared. And well, no, I mean uh, that. Uh, what, what what can you share from, from my, what you my, saw there? My photographs and Joel's writing um, were awarded the 1980 Pulitzer Prize for international reporting, and the other. Um, nominees in the category that year were um, the New York Times coverage of the Iranian situation um, and the LA Times I think had uh, something else I, I, I don't remember exactly what it but we we were in in, in competition with some very uh, established news organ gathering organizations mm -hmm. and I th believe that the judges in that category realized that uh, the Courier-Journal took a risk. We did, we did stories, we went places that n not necessarily um, most papers would have chosen to send people. So as they, far as they, had, they admired our pluck. As far as, as far as newspapers go, were you guys in the minor leagues or major leagues? Um, the newspaper, the Courier-Journal at that point in time was probably one of the ten top newspapers in the United States. Okay. Um, it's it's fallen significantly since then, of course, because most newspapers have lost their moxie. Mm -hmm. um, uh, our stories, uh, my pictures described the the scene in the camps, and I've and Joel's writing uh, told the stories that the uh, reiterated the stories that the that the refugees told us about what the Khmer Rouge had been up to for, for five years. Uh, I've heard from people who were in the camps in the subsequent years, and they all, to a person, say the pictures, while hard to look at, are, are so accurate because they really described what life was like in those camps in that time, and that they... They need those pictures. They need to see those pictures to be reminded of uh, what they what they survived. And of course, is and they all say, "Well, of course, we don't have any pictures." Obviously, they didn't have no who sure. was, who was taking pictures. Nobody sure. had a camera, you know. Uh, so my pictures were were history for them, and I think that's. A, you know, is something I can really say I'm proud of is that I provided them with an accurate depiction of what 
their life at that time. Is there a uh, memorial or a museum or anything like that over there that uh, well that serves as a repository for your images? Not my images, but um, in uh, not at all from my stuff. But uh, uh, there is a there are two places in Phnom Penh where. The, the the Khmer the Khmer Rouge extracted terrible uh, penalties on the on people. One was the as the, called the Tuol Sang uh, prison. It was a, a former high school in central Phnom Penh that was turned into um, virtually a torture chamber, where nearly fourteen thousand I think was the number refugee or or Cambodian. Cambodians were um, murdered uh, within the walls of that, uh, quote, jail, which was really nothing more than a most heinous torture prison. Then there's another place outside of... So it's up there along with World War II concentration camps. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, for the the Cambodians who go there now, and I've been there, for the people who go there, it's their Vietnam Wall. Because on the, in that museum, there was a, there was a photographer um, working for the Khmer Rouge. His job was to photograph every person that was brought in there, and so the walls and the in the rooms of this of these buildings, and it still looks like an old an old school. Hmm. Um, they're li- they're just covered with these portraits of all the victims that came through the, you know, there, there are thousands of them, these portraits of these uh, people who were murdered there. And you can see some of the rooms where these people were, were kept, and they some of the beds and where they were chained up, and uh, you can hear the stories are, you know, so it, really it's, it's Cambodia's um, living Vietnam memorial. It's their way of going there. They go there and uh, to mourn the loss of lives and also to try to remember uh, and not, not forget what happened there. So then a, a few years ago, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, you and the writer, I'm sorry, what was his name? Joel, Joel, Brink- Joel Brinkley. You know, uh, the, the, he was the son of uh, the famous uh, NBC News broadcaster, David Brinkley. And, and you guys... Uh, reunited and returned to yes, Cambodia? In, in 2009, Joel was working on a book. Uh, we went back 30 years after we'd been there in the first place to see what had changed in the country, if anything. Mm-hmm. And, of course, w- what we found was um, that over half of the population suffers from PTSD as a result of the um, wrath of the Khmer Rouge, and that even their... The, the people who suffer from, were in the camps and were kids in the camps at the time, have this PTSD, and actually the trauma is uh, almost hereditary, passed down to their, to their offspring as well. So the country still has a very um, long way to go in um, overcoming the, the uh, legacy of the Khmer Rouge. Um, we found the country is rife with con- corruption, from virtually from the day you're born to the day you die, it's it's who you can pay off to get what you want, and uh, that you 
have to carve out what you can get for you and however you can do it. Um, it's the, the country, while trying to become a full-fledged member of the, of the uh, 21st century national, national communities, um, has a long way to go. Hmm. If you look at any of the charts and graphs about corruption in the world, um, Cambodia is not at the bottom, but quite close to the bottom of the worst countries in terms of corruption. Probably only exceeded by places like Afghanistan and Iraq. <laughs> well, that... Uh that that's that story of Cambodia. Let, let's hear about some other experiences you've had uh, no, while photography. Please move on. <laughs> yes, let's. <laughs> There's something more, more I'm, pleasant. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm starting to. Yeah. Cry, but I'd never admit that in public. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I've done crying. I've done. I've been there. Yeah. Um, tell us about some of the other uh, interesting um, people and in, that you've encountered along your. You know, photography every, journals. you know, people like to people like to think, oh yeah, you got to meet famous people like Mother Teresa and Clinton and uh, the Dalai Lama. And, uh, but my career, uh, and that's great. You know, I enjoyed those people, and I always just treated them like another subject. You know, they were they happened to be important and and had great history about them, but in the end, they were they were they were subjects. You know. And um, I think we always, we, yeah, it wasn't like I spent days and days and days and days or even weeks with these people, but mm -hmm. I had chance encounters, you know, with, with Clinton when he was in, he came to California once for uh, an environmental summit. Um, I covered his inauguration. Um, I actually photographed him when he was here in Bend a couple of years, a few years ago, mm. when he was on the stump for Hillary. Well, she didn't get the nomination, but he was, you know, so I, I've had some, some, in, in, some encounters with him, and he's always been a gracious person to me. I think he's, he's one of these people who understands that you have a job to do, and, and he'll make it as easy as he can for you, and, and, and he was, no errors about him, he was just a nice guy. Um, probably the most impressive person I think I ever met um, on that kind of world-famous stage was um, was the Dalai Lama. I met him in, in uh, California when he came out to do a some kind of a, I don't know, some kind of a ceremony up on top of Mount Tamalpais was just right outside of oh, yeah, San, Francisco. San Francisco. So I went up there one, I went up there for that and um, had, had a, I don't know, maybe five minutes with him. You know, I mean, but did this is yeah. time you spent yeah. with him, or were yeah. you just around him taking pictures? I was t around him taking pictures, but you know, it's he and he. We, he and I talked a little bit, and he was just nice and cordial, and just a very generous, interesting guy. Um, could just you can just tell you can get a sense from somebody right away if yeah. they're if they're if they're um, have they have an aversion to you being there or whatever you know. But I didn't have any feeling like that with him. Um, nice, nice guy. I had a I had a chance uh, during actually during uh, Clinton's inauguration, um, which was held on a very very cold uh, January twentieth of what nineteen eighty what about eighty ninety three 
because he was elected in 92, but mm -hmm. the inauguration was in 93. Mm -hmm. um, being a, I went there uh, and got press credentials to cover the inauguration, and so you put up on this uh, massive uh, platform and bleacher kind of stand and get there at like 6 in the morning to get your position and go through security and all this kind of stuff, and you stand there, stand there, stand there, and you're freezing your... No, that's and you're, <laughs> you're cold, <laughs> and you also have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> so, so at some about you know, about you know the thing starts at noon, and about eleven o'clock in the morning, I had enough. I got, I got to go get go to the head and find the. So I trudge down to the the head, and coming back to where I have to climb back up the risers to get back to where I was, uh, there, I can I hear a commotion behind me, and I turn around, and a few people are escorting Wilson uh, Nelson Mandela to his place at the on the podium at the inauguration. Oh, wow. So I just stood there, as, and I, as he walked by, I stuck my hand out. Stuck my hand out, like, hi. And he stopped, looked at me and smiled, shook my hand. Didn't say anything, just moved on. Wow. And I thought, you know, he didn't have to do that. No. He didn't have, he could have just walked right on by, just like, you're right, get out of my way. You know? But he wasn't, he stopped. And he just smiled at me and shook my hand and moved on. And I um, I always thought that was just generous of him. It, it uh, quite a sign of the person he was. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah. And I have friends who have covered him for 10, 20 years, 30 years. They've covered all the what was going on in South Africa. And um, so they have a, their whole career was based, built on uh, covering apartheid, the yeah. dismantlement of apartheid. But, uh, so, I mean, my five seconds with him is just a drop in the bucket. But, but, still, but, noted, still, but, but still notable. But, but still, you know, meant something to me. Yeah. Any other uh, standouts that, uh, any other experiences that just were kind of got highlights? To meet, got to meet one of the Iranian hostages, um, a guy named David Roder, who was, um, came to Louisville uh, for a, the governor's prayer breakfast. And it was right after he, they, he, the the uh, uh, hostages had been released. He was living in Virginia, and the and governor at the time was Governor John Y. Brown, um, and his wife was Phyllis George, the former Miss America. Hmm. And he uh, he gave a presentation at this governor's prayer breakfast in Louisville, and and afterwards um, I got a, a chance to go up and just. Talked to him for a few minutes. Nice guy. You know, I was these, and there's people that just you, you would never, as a, otherwise have any chance to meet. You know that you, uh, through your work, through because you have a camera, you you have a, sort of a, an open door. That you can come in mm -hmm. and, and, um, go from there. Interesting. Interesting. Um. What were the what were the high points and the low points of your career? They're all high. They're all uh, high. Yeah, the, in my business, that business of photojournalism, you never know from one day to the next what you're going to be doing. You know, it, and and one of the things it teaches you is to be flexible, uh, think on your feet, um, be adaptable to change, um, go with, uh, not have a 
preconceived, preordained idea of what you're going to do, because invariably it never works out that way. <laughs> if you, <laughs> you have a plan, then yeah. rewrite the plan. Rewrite the plan. <laughs> rewrite the plan again. Or the plan will rewrite you. <laughs> yeah. um, especially uh, relevant to my work in Yosemite for uh, my two-and-a-half-year project on the, uh, the human beauty in the park. Uh, that was a, a book project that I wound up doing for the Yosemite Association that was published on the anniversary of the 100th anniversary of the park. Mm. And and I when I first went there I, in 1988, I wanted to document the, the human experience in the park. I realized that there had been so much done on the on the beauty of the park, the the botany, the biology, the flora, the fauna, da 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 da, but nobody had taken a look at the human experience in the park, from the visitors to the people who lived there, uh, the rangers, the people who worked in the Iwani Hotel, all this kind of stuff. And of so course, I, the the climbers that have been well, the climbers trying you know, to just you know knock off the walls. Yeah, and as it turns out, everybody's who everybody is a visitor in Yosemite. Yosemite, you can be there. You can be there an hour, you can be there 25 years, but you're always just a visitor because the place endures far beyond your time there. Um, and one of the major lessons I learned is that on a project that big, you really have to trust serendipity because whatever I tried to do, if I went down there with specific goals in mind, and uh, it rarely worked out, but something always better seem to pop up and once you embrace that and incorporate that concept of serendipity into your it's almost like another lens in your bag that if you just open your mind up and allow um, the free flow of events and without you trying to ordain things it usually works out better hmm. so I have I have a lot of pictures from that project that would not have happened had I just been uh, rigid in what I thought I wanted to do. So, so no high <laughs> points. Yeah, so they're all they were all high points, you know. And every day, every day could be a good day or every day could be a crappy day. You know, she, I mean, I have some some incidences that I remember specifically that think made me think. You know, I don't want this is crazy. I don't want to do this. This is nuts. You know, I think the low points in my career was when I, when I would butt heads with um, people in the newsroom who had no visual acuity at all and were trying to tell me how to go outside and do my job. Oh. You know? And, and I don't want to lambast anybody personally, but there was just some, sometimes there was just this overall um, feeling within the newsroom that, well, we're sitting here, we're, desi we're deciding what we're going to cover and how we're going to do it, and, and we want this. We w they had that rigidity. rigidity. Yeah. They didn't have the serendipity. Let, like, you know, give you, the, give you the freedom to just go out and come back, you know, show us bring, us, bring us your magic. Bring us what you see, and we'll go from there. But no, they had these pre preconceived ideas of stuff. Do you think anything has changed? Um, well, having not been in the news, it certainly hadn't changed by the time I left in 2007. So I don't think it's 
ostensibly changed. That what has probably changed is there are fewer of those fewer of those people in newsrooms now because of the demise of um, the newspaper industry. Yeah. Yeah. Or just the drastic reduction in the way the newspaper is done. I still think there's probably a lot of that parochial attitude. Um, once in a while you see it. I think I think the real creativity is going on outside of newspapers and photography in terms of websites and blogs and and other other places. I don't think I don't think the the uh, the best work in photojournalism now is being done at newspapers where it was when when I was working. We happened to be in a period of time uh, in the newspaper industry when it was really kind of the golden age, and it, it probably began at the point of the Pentagon Papers, you know, when, back in the 60s when the, uh, the uh, kind of like the Snowden thing, when the word, word got out about what was really going on in, in Vietnam and what was, you know, and it, and it changed, and Watergate, and, what, and, and, what, and people who were uh, curious wanted to be in newspapers because they thought that's where they could um, find some personal satisfaction. And uh, so the newspaper industry was great in the 60s through the, you know, the 90s. Was it, uh, did the uh, photographers have a more of an artful eye or did they... Uh, some did. Did they yeah. have more of a... Uh, I don't want to use the word agenda, but did they um, show you the story that they wanted to tell? Well, some just like any industry, and like employees in any business anywhere, there are some people that are visionaries. There are some people who, who are just absolutely geniuses at what they did. And there were people who just went along for the ride. Mm-hmm. They were there. It was a nice job for them. It was a nice, cushy job. They... Uh, they got to be outside to get to that, but they, 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 a lot of them just didn't have any, any visual creativity. They were, they were just, they were just, uh, they were laborers. Were they just get the shot yeah. that the editors yeah, wanted me to get? Yeah, exactly. There, there's a saying, you know, that, um, a laborer is a person who works with his hands. Um, a craftsman is a person who works with his hands and his head. And an artist is a person who works with his hands, his heart, and his head. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that can be kind of applied to basically any any um, creati- like any creative profession. I like that. Yeah. Any creative profession. Yeah, yeah, that, that could that could apply to so many things. Oh, Med- yeah, medicine, yeah. for example. Well, yeah, sure. Any you name it. Yeah, you know, but it, uh, so yeah, the the low points were just. When you when when your when your vision and creativity was being scuttled by uh, people who didn't understand the visual importance of what you were trying to do. So let's let's uh, take a little bit of a turn then, and and let's talk about where you are now. And and of course, I first met you uh, being involved with the Sisters Folk Festival, and mm-hmm. um, you were coming on as I was kind of done with with my time being involved, um, mm-hmm. which, uh, you know, having a second kid <laughs> changes my priorities. So, I'm, I'm, <laughs> yes. so, uh, obviously it was, uh, left over to incredible hands, but, uh, what is it that you are doing now with photography? I, uh, photograph 
pretty much everything that happens within the folk festival. Um, every all the concerts, all the workshops that the Americana kids go through at the high school, uh, my own two hands. Um, and then I also do a lot of work, uh, freelance, uh, well, volunteer work for the Deschutes Land Trust. Hmm. Um, I photograph pretty extensively for them uh, on the, about uh, trying to uh, illustrate the properties that the, the land trust is managing. Now, is that, uh, are you taking artful shots of of the land trust uh, properties yeah, or or, it's certainly, or is this just simply a well, just they need these aspects of it well it's certainly i i want to be artful about it i want to be creative uh, i want to show the natural beauty you know one of the things that i do less of up here than i did during my working years was i have less uh, my subjects are more uh, physical rather than than human um, I did do one project a few uh, months ago that with Gary Alberts and uh, the photographer who lives out in Camp Sherman, mm-hmm. who's uh, virtually blind but still gets out and does his photography thing. Yeah, but um, which is an interesting concept, like being oh deaf yeah. and playing music. Oh yeah, but uh, uh, other other than other than that, most of my work now is 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 uh, landscape, mm. natural the natural beauty of the world. Not that I wouldn't dig into a, a human topic if one came around. Well, it seems like you do. Um, well, just, just from the folk festival. The folk festival. Yeah, but it's more, again, that's more uh, tangential. The performers come to town. Yeah. I, I spend a little bit of time with them and they move on. But having been involved and having been up at the uh, the Caldera Song Camp and, mm-hmm. and playing music, it's, mm-hmm. there's one of the things that I always identify with is is not just the song not just the lyrics but the energy that they bring to the performance Mm -hmm. and it's easy to get caught up in that energy when you're there hearing it and you're there experiencing it Mm -hmm. but um one thing i've noticed with uh, looking at some of the photographer the the photographs from from all those places is is without sound capturing a musical energy um and just seeing the the expression and and the how and how you and how you frame it that yeah, it's like yeah. how do you how do you photograph the wind? Yeah, you know how do you photograph it? Show me the take a picture of the wind. Well, mm, excuse me, can't do that. I can show you what the wind does to something, but I can't show you the wind. But yet you, know? you did you did show us the wind looking at those pictures. I mean, of course we can't hear the music they're playing, but. Just looking at it, I, I don't know what it is. I'm not a photographer, well, but I can... what you try I can... to do with the, the folk festival artists is, is, to, is to show them almost outside their music. You know, to show them as artists mm-hmm. in some form. You know, with, and, and, it, and it's very hard uh, sometimes to show that artist in, during a performance and uh, remove all the technical... Um, detritus that's around them, the microphones yeah. and the wires and the lighting and whatever else, you know, to, to, to isolate that uh, performer into some sort of a, almost an abstract, um, but yet um, sort of impersonal way. Yeah, and and then uh, how about your uh, foray into ballet? What? I, oh, uh, ballet is wonderful. It's just I've I've always 
You know, I st- uh, the, the first ballet I really shot was uh, 1979 um, when Mikhail Brishnikov came to Louisville. He was the only... It's the only time in his career that he performed as an artist in residence with a regional company. And he was with the uh, Louisville Ballet for two summers, 79 and I guess the following summer. And so he was there like two or three months uh, each year. And I photographed him the first summer he was there. And just I was entranced with, with ballet. Hmm. Um, for one, it was it was it was incredibly athletic. Everybody thinks dancers are. I don't know. I don't know the right word. They're foofy. A, a foofy. That's a good word. <laughs> you know, um, until you understand what ballet really is, and it it's 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 dance plus it's gymnastics, it's athleticism uh, beyond virtually any other athlete. I don't know of another athlete that could do what gymnasts do or what um, ballet dancers. The closest would probably be figure skating or the free exercise in gymnastics. Well, during my time um, in, um, well, not not athletics, but in in training and and being in the world of working in athletic clubs and that sort of thing and and also being a trainer uh, at other jobs that I've, I've worked. One of the things I re- that just really stood out for me uh, through all the experiences I've had, the the two workouts, according to this the source, uh, the the two workouts that are the best overall whole body, the best thing you could do are boxing and dancing, mm-hmm. because it incorporates flexibility, every, everything, strength, yeah, flex, flexibility, strength, power. Yeah, uh, rock climbers have that. You know, the old thing is the weight strength to weight ratio yes. to make you a good climber. Yes. You know, um, that's why I'm not a very good climber anymore. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I concur. <laughs> you know, I, I've had my days on the rock that I really enjoyed, but um, but I'll never be a, a ballet dancer, but I so appreciate and understand, I do understand what they're going through, you know, and it's why they get injured and 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 why it's... It, it, is in, in so uh, it, um, intoxicating for them because nothing could be, I think, as a human being, to be able to move gracefully and with dynamism in, to a piece of music. And explosive power in oh, a very graceful it's just, way. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's stunning. And, I, and I, I've, been a, I've been hooked on it ever since. And so the way I really got into doing it in... in I really got into it then again was in was in Sacramento in my last job uh, in Sacramento uh, 1996 when my daughter was six years old the um, Sacramento Ballet always uses about 400 kids every holiday season for the annual Nutcracker productions Mm -hmm. and the Nutcracker for the Sacramento Ballet is you know like their major money maker for the year but they also they employ three three different casts and there's about 120 kids or so or more in each cast and they range from from dancing roles to little kid roles um little cherubs you know just it's it's and it's a whole community event and so every year um 
starting in 1996. For about five years, my daughter got some role in the Nutcracker. And I wanted to be able to photograph her. And so I was uh, somewhat um, using using the the uh, uh, benefits of my uh, job as a news photographer to to get inside the ballet and not only photograph the ballet and the work that the company was doing, but to photograph my daughter and some of the performances. From you know, I could stand in the wings and you mm-hmm. know, and I fully admit that you know that was that was. Uh, Good for me, but it wasn't something that every parent got the had the ability to do. Anyhow, well, but they could look at your photos, you know, even though if they were yeah. of your daughter. Um, but after she uh, con- discontinued being in the Nutcracker, I mean, it, just, it was I was still at that time then photographing um, every production that the company put on, and I did that for twelve years um, till I left uh, Sacramento. Um, and in fact, uh, because of my lo- long volunteer um, association with the company, um, when they went on their first international tour to China in 2007, they took me along and to just uh, document the the company's tour of oh, Beijing cool. and Shanghai. Oh, great! And when I came back, I I produced a book for the company on the on the trip, and so it was it's a marvelous. I I just you know it's been it's been one of the real um, real benefits, real joys I've ever had in, in photography. It's been as much fun as uh, I have as much fun photographing ballet as anything. And I've I have a running dialogue with the dancers. I I understand what they're doing. I learned enough about the ballet to understand um, what the terminology is and mm-hmm. this kind of stuff. You know. So, and then afterwards, the dancers and I would get together and look at pictures and and. Um, they would say, oh, you missed that moment. And I would say, well, no, 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 no. I say, um, there's, a, there's a thing in ballet that you're either coming up to the peak of your move or you're coming down from it. Mm-hmm. And so I would look at the pictures and they would be off one way or the other. And I said, well, you, I'd tell the dancers they just didn't get there in time. <laughs> <laughs> or you got there too late. <laughs> yeah. you know, the, they would, you know, when in fact is... Uh, I'm the one that's off. Yeah. You know? So, but you know, ballet is just—it's a—it's a special—it's a, special, a special part of my memory of of the work I've done. And when uh, the Oregon, uh, the um, the ballet from Portland uh, came over a couple of years ago and did a uh, artist in residence for a week at Caldera, I was up there all f- for the week and uh, oh, cool. and followed them through a week of. And that was, you know, boy, I just, you know, I just eat that up. That's so much Especially fun. Especially in that place. Oh, yeah. That place is. Yeah, it was really, it was really a lot of fun. So how did you end up in Central Oregon? And, and the reason why I ask this question, and I, of course, with this podcast, I ask everyone that question. Mm-hmm. But you have been all over the world. You could live all over the world. Why Central Oregon? Well, first of all, it was, uh, it was, it was, it was far enough away from Sacramento. I really wanted to get out of California. Sorry, <laughs> sorry to invade Oregon that way, but I that's just, right. You're in good company. <laughs> I just I, I could not wait to get out of Sacramento, and um, wanted to get. I wanted to be small. I wanted to live smaller, live in a smaller place. Um, we had my wife and I um, have uh, some friends who had already purchased a home up here, 
and invited us up for a birthday party one summer. I think it was 2001. And uh, said, why don't you come up and just check the area out and see if you like it and uh, maybe make a vacation out of it. So we did, and we, we came up. We spent uh, we spent a week up here. We stayed out at the in Camp Sherman in the little cabins on the Metolius mm-hmm. and, the, and and really fell in love with the place. Um, really liked it. You know, the hike down... Uh, from Canyon Creek to see the springs coming out of the, the out of the side of the hill on the Matolas mm-hmm. River was the it was just it was it sealed the deal for me. And uh, we came back uh, and we've been back every every summer, uh, well, and then we since then and bought a house up here in 2005. Even though we hadn't actually retired from our jobs in Sacramento, we still we knew this is where we were coming. So for a couple of years, we had to carry a double mortgage to, to, um, but when we, when we left Sacramento, we had a place ready to go, and uh, it's been a wonderful, wonderful experience. And what I enjoy most about it, and I, and and the longer you're here, you realize the depth of the um, uh, experiences that people, their their life experiences that they bring to this area. You know, you can maybe be critical of people, you know, everybody escaping from California or wherever, you know. But the fact is we've all come from so many different backgrounds and experiences, and it just adds to the depth of um, the beauty of the place, not only in its physical beauty, but in its uh, in its uh, personal beauty with uh, the people who live here. The artistic community, the the volunteers, the the music that goes on, the the um the variety of the art that people uh can do um is just i think it's unparalleled for such a small place that this is so with all the experiences you've had um what in your estimation are the keys to living a good life what advice would you give to anyone listening curiosity be curious be curious you know, be open to change, be uh, adaptable to um, ideas. You don't have to, you know, the old Socratic saying that um, an uh, intelligent man is a person who will engage in others' uh, belief and opinion without having to accept it. Hmm. You know, that uh, you that you state, you know, to me it's curiosity. And I, I think the one thing that that separates um, in terms of photography, it separates people from just being snapshot people. The people who are really um, engaged in photography is is what's your level of curiosity? You know, you always want to know why. You know, you want to know you want to, you know why is it this way? What you know, you want to know more about it. You know, and it can be it can be a trail or it can be somebody's somebody personally that you run into. You just want to know, you want to know something about everything you encounter. So, you know, without curiosity, I think, and uh, to me that's, uh, that's critical. Um, I love it. And to I be, and just to be um, true to yourself, you know, to know who you are. And of course, the older you get, the, you you know more about yourself. You can like it or not, but <laughs> it's who you are. You know, 
just but just to be comfortable in your own skin. All right, so now we're getting to the uh, the part of this of this podcast where we ask. Uh, I have eleven questions here, but uh, we'll ask some questions and just for a, a quick response. And and the first thought that comes to your head, I want to I want to hear what you have to say. Optimist or pessimist? Oh, optimist. Pragmatic skeptic. <laughs> How's that? Uh, I I think I just got confused. <laughs> um, what is what has been your favorite image? Not doesn't have to be one you've taken, but what is your favorite image that sticks in your brain right now? You're shaking your head at me. There's too many. Yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm yeah. there there are too many. The answer is no. <laughs> no, there, there are too many. <laughs> uh, the, I think I know the answer to this next one. What has been your least favorite image or the one that has disturbed you the most? Um, images that aren't uh, factual, mm. you know, that pretend to be factual that aren't. Mm. So what do you love? What, what things in this world do you love? Um, just being able to get up every day and try again. And what do you dislike very much? Having to get up every day and try again. <laughs> <laughs> Great answer. Uh, didn't I get it right yesterday? <laughs> what what guides you um, through this process? Experience, just you know, your life experiences. You know, you can, if you, you you've 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 gotten through worse, and you, so you get through this, and you know, maybe it'll, maybe it'll be better, maybe not. And what distracts you? My own mind. <laughs> <laughs> Inertia. <laughs> Solitaire. That's great. That reminds me of that George Carlin quote: "I think, therefore I am. I think. I think. Yeah, that's right." <laughs> Um, I wish I could. I wish I could come up with some pithy quotes like Carlin could. Oh yeah. <laughs> what what was and what is now your single motivating purpose? What was? Well, what was was to pursue um, photographic excellence. You know, to, to get as good as you could get, to experience as much as you experience, and now it's to. Um, Reflect on it and and uh, decide if it was worth it. And last question: What do you hope to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Well, I um, I'll interpret that as to mean, how do I want to be remembered when I'm, uh, when I'm yep. gone? Um, he was true to himself, and he did it his own way. Good answer. Do you have any uh, parting words? at the end of this wonderful conversation. You'll know me uh, mostly when you see me out there with the cameras. <laughs> yeah. 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 If you see me with the cameras, wave high. <laughs> yes. Uh, so once again, your website is uh, jmather.com. Uh, you have a lot of photos on ballet, the folk fest, the, uh, the Cambodia then and recently. There's, and there's everything... Everything, um, pretty much my entire uh, body of work is, is going to show up there someday because um, 
I'm, it's part of an archive process that I'm going through to, to try to preserve uh, as much of my work as I can. So it just doesn't wind up in the trash after I'm gone. Well, thank you so much for sitting in with me and talking with, with me and sharing these stories. It was a pleasure. It's been my pleasure hearing it. Uh, jmather.com, please go take a look, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks.